All right, everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, I am Brandon Odo, back here with Brian Bowling. Hey, everybody. And today we're going to talk to an interesting new guest. This is Leon Chen. He's a nurse practitioner with the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care. He works in uh, ICU at a, a large cancer hospital in New York City. Uh, he sees combined medical and surgical patients, but generally uh, oncologic type patients. And we're going to explore a little bit uh, about the world of kind of onc-related critical care, which is certainly a specialty, and I think one that a lot of us are not super comfortable with, uh, and yet we see them. You know, a lot of people have cancer, and a lot of them end up in our ICUs, not necessarily in these highly specialized centers, and sometimes they've got problems that are, are a little tricky. So um, Brian's going to help us get to a c- case. Brian, you want to go? Yeah. All right. So yeah, this so this is I feel like oncology is an area. You know, I used to say this about neuro until I got into neurocritical care. Everybody says neuro is weird and and specialized, but uh, that's how I feel about oncology now. Right? Is I know a couple of buzzwords and um, and and that's about it. You know, I I got to I really have to lean on my oncology colleagues when we have these patients show up, which in in my world is not super common. But um, like you said. Not everybody has access to a freestanding cancer center. So um, cancer being what it is, this is stuff that's going to show up in our ICUs. So, uh, all right, Leon. So you are um, working in the ICU Mm -hmm. and you get a call from the ED about a patient that they'd like you to admit. So this is a 47-year-old woman who presented with shortness of breath and headache uh, for the last day or so. She comes in. Um, she is, uh, the ED reports that she's initially uh, intermittently confused, but, uh, but more or less oriented. Uh, she is short of breath. She's now currently on, uh, four liters of oxygen, uh, is a little dyspneic, but still, um, satting. Okay. Chest x-ray is sort of just, uh, bilateral opacities, um, nothing focal, uh, but the interesting thing is they said uh, when they looked at her labs, uh, her CBC is very uh, unusual in that her white count is 150,000. So okay. you're going to go down and see this lady. Um, what do you want to know about her? So uh, being in a cancer hospital, like for this patient, uh, every single person would have a cancer diagnosis. This person with a white count of, like, what is it, 180, you said? 150. 150. Uh, the one thing I worry about is history of uh, local tumor, the leukemia, anything established diagnosis. And is she getting treatment wise? Like, is, does she have established diagnosis? Is she getting treatment? So she is not. She does not have a current diagnosis of any kind of cancer. Okay. Okay. So then uh, I would want to know that. Yeah. Beside the x-ray, is she taking medication, recent sick contact, and also in the case where she has bilateral opacities, you know, in our time, obviously we will check for a COVID test as well. But other medical history and um, uh, and also her uh, um, medication list okay. uh, will be good. So she's a reasonably healthy, I think I said 47-year-old. Uh, she has... Um, mild hypertension that is so far controlled with diet and lifestyle. Um, she's not on any current, uh, like chronic medications. She reports that, uh, she's been relatively healthy. She's been around her, 
um, husband and kids. Um, no real sick contacts to report, uh, although she's been out in the community. Um, and I guess for the sake of the discussion, let's assume this is 2019 and uh, we, we won't have to worry about potential COVID exposure. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's nice to go into a pre-COVID time and not to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, any other labs? Or like, uh, also, um, how's her like, hemoglobin? So her, her H&H uh, is reasonably normal. Um, plate count is normal. Her, her H&H is uh, 10 and 30. Her chemistries are back. Her potassium is a little elevated at 5.5. Uh, but otherwise, her chemistries are reasonably normal as well. Okay. Um, and her other vital signs? Uh, she's mildly tachycardic at 105. Um, blood pressure is 120 over 75. Um, she's setting 92% on four liters with a mildly elevated respiratory rate. Okay. And you say she's a little bit altered? She's uh, a little bit confused at times. Uh, okay. She answers the orientation questions appropriately, but uh, her husband's with her and he says she's just been sort of acting off the last couple of days, um, just forgetful and not herself. Got it, got it. And this came on uh, how long ago? Uh, so the last couple of days, she's been progressively having these problems with her memory. And just like her husband said, just she's just a little off. Uh, and he's noticed that she was complaining of getting short of breath easier, uh, you know, getting winded, climbing steps, stuff like that. But it's gotten progressively worse over the last two or three days. Got it. Uh, you said no fever, right? Uh, she does not have a fever now. Okay. Uh, I mean, with a patient like this with a white count of 180, I'm fairly sure she has some type of, uh, like leukemia or some type of liquid tumor. Um, the big thing is being, um, her presentation with her neurological changes and her respiratory insufficiency. Uh, with that high of a white count, the thing that we really worry about for the cancer population is, uh, leukostasis. And then with a the neurological condition, it almost resembles a uh, like stroke-like symptoms. So uh, that ultimate status and also the respiratory insufficiency could both be due to like the white count being so elevated. But of course, um, her white count being 180, obviously she's functionally um, immunosuppressed or immunoincompetent. So we probably, in this case, I would start her on uh, empiric antibiotic uh, and uh, get blood culture, um, uh, respiratory like panel, like viral flu panel, all that stuff, and then uh, started on just like broad spectrum antibiotic, and uh, and then you know depending on the local institution, if she's only on two liter nasal cannula, she seems to be okay for now. But one thing I do want to check for is also um, if she's able to lay down and then tolerate tests. I, I will want to get a uh, CT uh, chest on her, uh, and also well PE at the same time. Okay. So she's, she's actually on four liters, but she, yeah, she can tolerate laying flat. So you get a CT, um, that shows nothing focal, but some sort of bilateral ground glass opacities, uh, negative for PE. Okay. What and, do you, uh, you, you said you would start her on empiric antibiotics. What would you start her on? Yeah, I would probably, you know, I would get a urine strep legionella, uh, test, but at the same time, I would probably start her on, uh, Vancomycin and uh, Pitazo, and my institution is pretty standard, like very antibiotic. 
Okay. Uh, also, in because she came in from the community, I would probably cover her with the zithro bison as well. Um, you know, the she has bilateral opacity, so that's yes. the CT, right? Yes. So, which is a little bit unusual for like a community acquired like Legionella or anything like that. But it, she's functionally you know incompetent, then you know anything is possible. But um, I would probably scan her head as well. Okay. Would you cover her for fungals? So not initially, even though these patients are pretty, um, cause the, the pretty much all bets are off, right? If they're in the, in, uh, you know, compromised, uh, you will worry about fungal stuff and then also PCP. And depending on where location, you have to worry about like mold, uh, use. But I, that I'll probably wait for a little bit more information. Uh, but the, the thing that we really worry about is still the standard bacterial infection. Um, and then, you know, we probably would do more tests and, and see if anything grows back or like, you know, if we have to do a BAL or anything like that, but really see how she responds to um, the empiric antibiotic initially. Okay. And what are you looking for specifically with the CT head? Uh, just to make sure that there's no other things. You know, her platelet count is okay. Uh, a lot of these patients with a white count of 180, chances are they are, uh, the ones I've seen are usually a little bit longer cytopenic. Uh, also, you know, the white count being so high, it could cause like a stroke as well. So at least we could get an initial CT to make sure there's no gross abnormality, uh, no stroke or anything like that to, that we could uh, like really intervene on right away. Um, I mean, ideally, you should get an MRI, but that's not something that we have to get emergently. Okay. Uh, you you said you're suspicious for uh, a leukemia with um, you know, white blood cell counts like this. Are there mm -hmm. particular flavors of leukemia that you're thinking about? Yeah, so uh, really hard to say, but for us, it, you know, CML, sometimes it's something like that. Uh, her age group is she doesn't get as much like ALL, uh, like ALL but yeah, just generally leukemia, and then um, it would probably have to do more studies, like, you know, check the blast count and bone marrow, all that stuff. But that I would probably defer to the oncology team. So okay. this is somebody who I, I would get an urgent oncology, uh, like liquid, liquid tumor console to, to work her up, like expeditedly. Um, uh, work her out for leukemia. Okay. Okay. So the head CT is red is no acute intracranial process. You look at it, you don't see any evidence of hemorrhage, no, um, no obvious, uh, hypodensities indicating, uh, ischemic stroke. Um, we've started her on broad spectrum and all the labs are pending. Um, and so you're going to get ready to move her up to the ICU. What are you concerned mm -hmm. about in terms of complications to watch for? So with her, if her white child is 180, uh, she has a pretty, you know, extensive tumor burden. Um, and then she could spontaneously lice, right? So that's one thing. So she could go into tumor lysis spontaneously and have, uh, electrolyte abnormality. And her potassium is already a little bit elevated. As her, uh, like white cells start to die, her white cow, I mean, her potassium could be even higher. So this is something that we want to keep an eye on. Um, we want to check BMP fairly frequently. Um, and also, uh, EKG just to make sure that there's no, um, like changes there. And then also another thing is that right now she's okay, but her respiratory status could easily worsen very, very quickly. Uh, she's on 40 days right now, but I see those patients turn south pretty quickly. So this is somebody who, you know, depending on what oncology's uh, opinion is, there's a chance that she might get like urgent, um, 
like high dose steroid or hydroxyurea to start killing some of the white blood cells. And this is somebody who also you might have to do like glucophoresis as well, depending on how severe she gets. Okay. Are there any other labs right now that you're interested in? So we got the uh, uh, the sepsis workup. I will probably get a lactate, uh, also an LDH. That will kind of give us an idea. And also the uh, uric acid as well. Her white count is still pretty high. Uh, I don't think she's lysing just yet, but um, she, she could start to lyse on like spontaneously. And also, especially if leukemia or the oncologist decide to start on a medication to suppress the white count, then definitely we'll be checking tumor lysis labs a lot more frequently. Okay. Um, and and what labs for tumor lysis syndrome? What labs would you said you'd be checking tumor lysis labs more? Frequently, yeah. what labs are you talking about? So mostly uh, basic metabolic panel, uh, magnesium, calcium, uh, FOS, uh, also LDH, and uh, uric acid. Okay. And you said that you would worry more about this when the white count started to fall. Is that mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. I mean, you would expect a treatment effect to be a reduction in the leukocyte count and then, you know, the sequela of that? <laughs> In other words, if you haven't yeah. had an effective treatment, then you're not going to see complications of it. Right. So it, it's very interesting. So, so sometimes, like, if they have a super high disease burden, you know, white count 180 is pretty high. So there is a chance that they might start just spontaneously uh, life, and then the white count will, be, it will drop, but then you have to deal with all the associated electrolyte abnormalities and all that stuff. But, um, you know, once, once the oncology see her and then decide to start her any type of treatment to start killing those white blood cells or to suppress it, then we have to deal with aftermath as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I, I know some people listening to this might want to do is get an ABG on her. Um, I'm always a little bit like hesitant getting ABG on people who with like a white count of 180, you know, any, anybody over a white count of like 80 or 100, uh, you could have like leukocyte larceny. So I don't know how reliable the PaO2 or uh, all those things are, are, are on the ABG. So, um, yeah, it, you know, she's not in, she's on four liters. I think we're okay with skipping ABG um, for now. So would you just manage, would you go by her pulse oximetry then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would go by her pulse ox. Okay. It's uh, pretty reliable for that. Um, yeah, and in terms of uh, the leukocyte larceny, like honestly, if they um, they uh, if they send a blood gas and put it on ice and then if they don't shake it, especially if they're point of care, then it's a little bit more reliable. But otherwise, I've seen um, the the, uh, the ABGs for these type of patients with that higher white count be very very off. Even for the potassium, they could they could have pseudo hyperkalemia and um, get overtreated. Uh, for hyperkalemia because of the, the immature white cell being so fragile. Okay, that's good to know. Are you concerned because of the the high white count? Are you concerned with hyperviscosity? Yeah. So I mean, leukocytosis ultimately is just a hyperviscosity syndrome. So you know, in the lungs, they cause essentially what almost like a PE like um, effect, right? They're just clogging up the pulmonary vasculature, and also same thing with the um, a neurological status, it, it, it's almost like a micro flown by in, in a sense, so cause like stroke-like symptoms. And theoretically, if it's high enough, they could clog up any, like they could, they could have anastemi, they, uh, they could have uh, clog up the coronary arteries, um, 
yeah, it's theoretically it could go anywhere. But the ones I've seen more, it's uh, leukocytosis in the lungs and then uh, associated neurological uh, changes. And overall, just it, it's a hyperviscosity and kind of covers like most of it. Like the, the, it's an umbrella term for various organs. Do you do anything in terms of treatment for hyperviscosity at this point? Um, IV fluids or anything else? Or is that based more on her status? So the only thing that's a little bit weird is the hyperviscosity syndrome. So those patients uh, with leukostasis or hyperviscosity syndrome, their their chest X-ray is usually relatively clear because it's mostly in the vasculature. The reason, one of the reasons why it's very hard to antibiotic is, is, you know, besides the fact that she's probably uh, um, immunocompromised and her X-ray with the bilateral opacities, um, it just worries me that she has a little bit more than just uh, uh, the hyperviscosity syndrome. That's why I, I do want to cover her with empiric antibiotics. And also for somebody like this, um, you know, I would probably get uh, a PCP uh, a test. So PCP, PCR, um, and then get, you know, some of the serum fungal markers just in case, like leptomen and, and um, uh, uh, BD glucan. All right. So you get her up to the ICU. And you're, you know, you're waiting for your tests and stuff to come back and it's a little bit later. Um, she's becoming increasingly more dyspneic. Uh, she's now on a 50% Venny mask. Um, and she's complaining of some abdominal pain, uh, and nausea. This point, what are you, what are your thoughts? So, uh, hyperviscosity syndrome, sometimes you could cause like bowel ischemia as well, because, uh, uh, like mesentery ischemia, just you know, it cloud cloud up te- like technically any place. So uh, since her symptoms are getting worse, um, I would like really want to get that oncology consult because uh, this is somebody who they might have to just start like leukostasis. I mean, um, uh, leukophoresis on uh, because she's she's so symptomatic. Um, I would also check a lactate just to see if uh, you know if I'm worried about bowel ischemia or anything like that. Um, this is. Not the case. Yeah, for those of us who don't know anything about anything, could you expand on what exactly leukophoresis is? Sure. So, uh, essentially, we uh, what leukophoresis is they actually take all the uh, uh, blood and actually um, spin it so they could actually separate out the white blood cells and also the red blood cells and serum, and then uh, almost scrape off the white blood cells, so to speak. Like the machine will actually just take away the white count and then return the rest of the serum back to. Uh, the, the, the body. So the patient will get the red blood cells back, the platelets back, the serum, uh, plasma, and then, but the white count will drop uh, significantly. So this is functionally like kind of a dialysis-like process? Yeah. So the, um, the we, we put in a dialysis catheter. It's the same uh, like trialysis catheter that we put in for dialysis. And then uh, there are specialized um, uh, leukophoresis nurses who come in and then they actually run the machine, which looks like a CRT machine in a sense, and then they 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 run it and then sort of screw like get rid of the white blood cells. And it's a it's like an episode, like you know, intermittent hemodialysis, or you run this over a day, or it's intermittent. It's intermittent. Yeah. So uh, obviously the oncologist will make a recommendation on how long they run it for, and then uh, but it's intermittent. It's it's not an entire day, um, but depending on the depending on the um i guess the institutional capability uh that was, because that's a that's a person who specializes in this who come in like at all hours right let's say this is three o'clock in the morning um i'm not like i haven't really seen uh 
often that we need to get somebody to come in like three o'clock in the morning to do local for races. But it, it's it sometimes makes more sense for the uh, oncologist to start them on medication to actually kill some of the white blood cells. Okay, so um, so you you call oncology and they sort of say, yeah, it sounds like we need to come see her. Uh, we'll we'll be head head over in a second. Um, you know, meanwhile, some of your labs are, are coming back now. Your LDH is 1,800, um, and your K is up to 6. Uh, the nurse comes to tell you also that she uh, she's she does not have a catheter. She just used the bedpan, uh, and it looks like there's some blood in the urine. So she's starting to have blood in the urine, and then the oncology is still, uh, still coming to see her, you said? Yes. Uh, so I would, and you, what was her platelet and coagulation? I, I, I think it was normal, right? Yes. So her, well, we didn't do really do coag, so we did platelet count was normal. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of coags, her coags are, are more or less less normal right now. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of these patients end up being uh, thrombocytopenic and then um, also uh, coagulopathic. And uh, so if she was thrombocytopenic, the little bit of blood in the urine might be like, you know, normal finding, but I, I would still want to get a, a urine analysis just to see, and then um, and then go from there. And uh, also, sorry, I forgot. So you said her potassium is up to how much? Six now. Okay, so uh, I would like I, I would I would get an EKG on her just to look for any signs of hyperkalemia. Uh, but again, with these patients with such high white count, they could easily have like pseudo hyperkalemia, which is kind of hard to like hard to uh, deal with because you could you could do a couple of things. You could do a whole blood sample uh, and then get a potassium from that. Or if you have point-of-care testing, uh, in our case that we do have a point-of-care uh, or GEM is the, 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 I guess the lab that we use, uh, we have that in-house in, in our unit and that kind of decreases transport time. Like, so I would probably get a blood sample and ask uh, the nurse to put in an ABG syringe with a little, like a heparin, heplock, and not heparin, the, uh, the heparin um, cap, and then without shaking it, rapidly bring to the the gel machine and run a potassium from there. Um, the decreased transport time and the lack of like shaking it or like, you know, that, that might actually preserve the white blood cell a little bit and then uh, it doesn't break down as much and get an idea of the potassium from that. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, th- that, that potassium is much more accurate than the BMP that, that's being put into like a, like a, uh, hydraulic, like not hydraulic, you know, um, the transport system into the lab and, and, you know, gets shaken around and that, that might cause a pseudo hyperkalemia. So oncology gets there and they're looking over things and, uh, they agree with you. They're debating right now, uh, between leukophoresis or a, a medical option. Uh, mm-hmm giving her induction chemotherapy or hydroxyurea. Um, what are sort of the pros and cons of each of those? So um, in, in my experience with it, like we, we do go with the oncology, because they are the specialists. So the oncology team has a lot of consideration. So this is somebody who like is symptomatic right now. Leukophoresis could be pretty fast, you know, to get rid of some of the symptoms and, um, you know, to, to really rapidly reduce the, uh, uh, the white blood cells. Hydroxyurea, I, the ones I've seen, are, it's a little bit slower. Sometimes they do hydroxyurea with like hydrosteroids as well uh, to achieve that effect. 
Uh, chemotherapy is an option, but obviously it's, you know, we don't have an established diagnosis yet. And so, so, uh, even though it's symptomatically, like, by, by lab, she clearly has some type of leukemia or some type of liquid tumor, but, but, um, I don't know if in the past, well, the ones I dealt with, they would like really jump to chemotherapy. So they, they might do something temporizing to decrease the weight count and then they could like do more work on. Okay. So I guess we're going to go with the, the leukophoresis. Um, since like you said, she's getting more symptomatic. Um, at what point do you, um, so I guess you said leukophoresis works pretty quickly. Um, if her, if she was getting to the point with her respiratory status where you were thinking about intubating her, is that something that you would do prior to, or would you try leukophoresis first to see if that could, um, turn things around? How fast does that work? The, the ones I've seen with leukophoresis, uh, they are relatively fast, but, uh, if her respiratory status and plus, like, you know, like I said, um, leukophoresis with the insertion of the catheter, if let's say she's not cytopenic or, you know, she can't lay down for us to put in the catheter, uh, if that gets a little bit delayed, like it, things could change pretty quickly. So if she were to get worse, we would obviously just manage her airway, manage her, you know, respiratory system mechanically, just like with any other respiratory failure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we will try to do leukophoresis, and hopefully within, like, an hour or two, you start to see some improvement. But uh, if not, uh, we just have to intubate her and continue to run it. Okay. Um, what other, what labs would be concerning to you in terms of the tumor lysis syndrome? You said the potassium could be pseudo hyperkalemia. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there other labs in the TLS sort of workup that are more reliable indicators that we're having lysis? So the uric acid, uh, so this is somebody who, um, if we were worried about lysing, right? So we will probably start them on out to prevent lysing. Uh, but if her uric acid is super high, then we could all actually cause a lot of kidney damage. So uh, that's something that we want to keep an eye on. The LDH is something that we want to trend because, you know, if she was uh, getting any type of induction chemo or, you know, hydrosteroid or hydroxyurea to cause that, that white count to drop, you know, to actually kill the white blood cells, the LDH, I kind of expect to go up. Uh, in fact, if she has a large tumor burden and then she's getting chemotherapy or anything like that, the white count is not dropping, the LDH is not increasing, that's kind of concerning for us because she's not really responding to therapy. So ultimately, for uh, like a cancer point of view, she it's, it's bad for the, like, it's, it's a bad thing. Like, it, it means that she's just not responding to our therapy. But apart from, you know, the potassium, the electrolyte, the calcium, um, we really have to keep an eye on the uric acid also. Okay. And uh, as someone who I don't know that I've ever looked at a uric acid level on a patient, what mm -hmm. would you say if it's really high, what's really high? So anywhere like, you know, in terms of uh, the, the ones that we see is um, the, the highest I want to say that I've seen is uh, like 13, 14, and that's pretty high. But usually we want it to be, uh, depending on what like lab you're using, uh, any, anywhere like above six is pretty bad. Okay. Like five yeah. or six. Okay. And so you said you would start somebody, you would start her probably prophylactically on allopurinol? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is somebody who probably would, would get started on allopurinol in anticipation that she's going to start lysing and cause uh, increased uric acid. But if she were to have a hyperuricemia, uh, she needs uh, 
respiratory case, which is something that actually will decrease somebody's uric acid level pretty uh, precipitously. Okay. Um, so for those of us who don't deal with cancer pretty regularly, so we, you know, tumor lysis syndrome is something mm-hmm. that uh, we read about in school and is a pretty big zebra. Um, it comes from the lysis of cells related typically to the treatment of, of the tumor. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a treatment uh, of like local tumors like leukemia. So as the white blood cells are lysed, um, you you know you get some degree of like red blood cell you know uh, lysing also, but mostly it's because the white blood cell is so high, and then as you kill them, you just release an incredible amount of like electrolyte inside and also the uh, uric acid. So gotcha. these patients often will have hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia. Their their calcium actually go down, um, and then probably in response to the hyperphosphatemia, and then um, but your hyperuricemia is something that commonly seen also. Okay. And it's much more common in um, things like lymphoma and leukemia than in solid organ tumors, right? Yeah. It mostly, you know, it, it's in the, well, like, like, like what I call like the liquid tumor, the leukemia, the lymphoma, as you, as you say. Um, solid tumor, not so much. Um, now, there are some experimental stuff they're doing that they're instilling uh, chemotherapies into the solid tumors. So those, you know, it kind of iffy. I'll probably have to uh, talk to the oncologist, the p- people running the trials, to just get an idea of like what to expect. So uh, in all of these cases, like oncology, because even though we're doing critical care, but working with cancer patients, there's so many things that we simply don't know. So we we work very closely with the oncology team, and um, uh, they are the ones who really will tell you, yeah, with this chemo regimen, this induction chemo, uh, we don't expect to see tumor lysis as much. And then uh, they're ones that are like, no, this is super high risk for tumor lysis. And then we really get their opinion on like how frequently we want to check the labs, and then um, really to understand like what their regimen is going to do and how to anticipate for the complication. So um, your lady's doing okay. She's on a 50% Vinny mask. She is still mildly dyspneic, but you don't feel like she's in any danger of losing her airway right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Put a line in her and start the leukophoresis. And, um, you know, just as you suspected, within uh, a pretty reasonable amount of time, she starts to have some resolution to her symptoms. Um, her abdominal pain's improving. Uh, her dyspnea is improving. Um, she still is mildly short of breath, um, but now her cultures are growing um, uh, some bacteria in her lungs. Uh, you don't have any definitive cultures yet, but the gram stain is positive. Um, okay. So what do, what do you do now? So these patients, um, as most other like immunosuppressed patients, like the thing that we worry about the most is um, like gram-negative bacteria infection. So um, this patient coming from outside, like, you know, gram-negative bacteria, also atypicals that you get from uh, uh, the community. I think that those are the things that I worry about the most. So I really want to check to see if like the, the resulting uh, urine legionella or um, also the uh, strep pneumo to see if they come back and then um, really continue her on the empiric antibiotic for now. Um, depending, so we assume that she got, um, we assume that she got uh, the, uh, um, started having these kind of symptoms in the last like few days to a week. It seems a little bit fast for a fungal infection, but uh, since they are 
like function in this press. Um, I would talk with the oncology team, but it would not be a bad idea maybe to start her uh, at least on uh, PCP prophylaxis and uh, some prophylactic antifungal medication and antiviral also. Okay. And what typically would be your drugs of choice for those? prophylaxis so for for the prophylaxis uh like the pcp i would probably start her on so i probably the best thing to do for pcp is uh bactrim but her potassium is a little bit elevated right now even you know even if we think it's like pseudohypochromia it might not be a good idea uh especially with the tumor lysis if it's not controlled it could cause like kidney damage and also so her potassium will be kind of out of whack um but there are other things that doesn't really do that as much like a torbacone uh, pentamidine, those are like second and third line, um, PCP prophylaxis. Um, apart from that, acyclovir is pretty good, like in a prophylactic antiviral. And then for antifungal, uh, the things that we really worry about is kind of um, the, uh, like, like mold, like aspergillus. Uh, so uh, it's not a bad idea to start her on postaconazole as a uh, prophylactic regimen. Okay. Now, is this a is this a situation where you would get ID involved at this point, or is this something that you feel comfortable uh, managing by yourself right now? So, so it's it's pretty interesting. So these type of patients, because she's not officially, she doesn't have a like an official diagnosis of like leukemia or anything like that, or like any type of malignancy. But uh, you know, our our uh, leukemia team and oncologists are most of the time pretty good at identifying most type of infection risk. So they, they often don't want ID involved, but in this case, you know, she 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 would be very interested because she's not technically a leukemic patient just yet until the diagnosis is like completely established. I, I think it would be a good idea to get ID on board at least to make some initial recommendation. Okay, All right. Um, so just out of curiosity, not a really a critical care question, but you, you keep mm -hmm. mentioning she doesn't have a diagnosis of leukemia. How, how mm -hmm. do we get a diagnosis of leukemia for her? How would they decide that? So in the regular CBT, uh, if by the book, you can look at the blast, uh, the, the, uh, blast count. And based on that percentage, you have a good idea of, you know, whether it's chronic, acute, and then, but really to make that, uh, diagnosis, they probably have to do a bone marrow um, uh, biopsy to really get an established diagnosis. And then they will do like a lot of different things like for flow cytology and a lot of like funky, you know, oncology stuff to make that actual diagnosis. And they're able to tell you like uh, different types and then really base like the chemo regimen on that. Okay, great. All right. Well, so she's looking better. Um, at what point do you feel like she's safe to leave the ICU and be downgraded to the floor? I mean, I know most patients, you know, critical care people, we feel pretty comfortable at saying, you know, their, their critical illness is resolved. Uh, they could leave the ICU, but I know in certain populations, there's certain things um, that are higher, higher risk that we watch for. We keep patients in the ICU for a few days, even, uh, even when they look fine. Uh, in a case like this, is there anything in particular that you're worried about in terms of complications or, or if she starts to just look good, she's okay to go? Yeah. So, I mean, she is somebody who is like a little bit interesting, right? Because she never went past 40 the nasal cannula and then she was a little bit ultra in her labs. Like the most significant thing is that she has a little bit of a hyperkalemia, which may or may not be real, you know, as we said. But uh, but the, the most concerning thing is that her white count being like 180, it's it's pretty scary because uh, like I said, she I, I think there's a good chance that she might like 
spontaneousness, even if we didn't start intervening. So I would say if we are looking at the white count and then there's a good response after leukopheresis, the white count is coming down and her electrolyte abnormality is starting to stabilize a little bit because theoretically when we get rid of all the you know crazy high white counts, her potassium should start to like normalize and then her electrolyte, you know, all those things should start to normalize. And if her oxygen requirement is not going up, her mental status is not getting any worse, uh, I would feel comfortable sending her to the floor. Okay. And what, what is a good response for leukopheresis? Leukophoresis. So it depends on, you know, so 180, and so they probably want to drop it pretty quickly because, especially if she's symptomatic. So uh, anywhere from, you know, 40, 50, that's manageable for the floor, that, that they're very used to dealing with these type of patients with, you know, a little bit elevated white count uh, because of disease. So, you know, and then, you know, depending on, you know, the tumor lysis frequency, if she has, this high of a tumor burden and she's lysing, we might be doing tumor lysis like every you know, four hours. And then as we back off, you know, everything stabilized, we go to six hours, eight hours, 12 hours. Those are something that could easily be managed by the floor and they're very experienced with it. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, forgot, I forgot to mention, I will probably start her as a maintenance fluid as well uh, as she's lysing to kind of flush out the, uh, uh, to help with the kidney confusion to protect the kidney. Okay, just normal maintenance fluid or a higher rate than normal or? So uh, there are different protocols, and then uh, we typically would do like 100 or 125 uh, as long as she can tolerate it, you know, and then uh, given that she doesn't have any cardiac history, she's just a little bit of hypertension, uh, I think 125 would be like a good, decent, and looking for urine output, like okay. a good, decent amount. Okay. And just fluid of choice, or is there any one in particular? So. So it's controversial, right? Because like she's a little bit hyperclinic. I know a lot of us don't, you know, saying that uh, potassium-containing uh, maintenance fluids like normosol, plasma light, or lactic ringer is perfectly safe. It's the acidosis that's the problem. But uh, for these patients, it's, I, I think most people will be a little bit more comfortable giving her anything that without any potassium in it. So it would be like normal feeling. Okay. Is there anything else that you can think of? No, I think the, uh, the big thing is that... Uh, she obviously has an infection of some sort, so she does need uh, to continue empiric antibiotic. We'll wait for the culture sensitivity. Um, and honestly, if she were to get worse, like, and she doesn't respond to the antibiotic, this is somebody who we might have to get pulmonary team involved uh, and uh, get a, a good BAL and send off a sample because she's immunocompromised. We're not sending the, like the normal sputum culture. We'll be sending a lot of things that's un, like a little bit unusual for the normal population, like adenovirus, metanomovirus, uh, RSV that you usually don't see in adults. Uh, we will be sending like also fungal markers, uh, probably even like acid mycobacterium. So pretty much things that like the, all the opportunistic infections that we, we don't worry about for normal people. This is somebody who, if we get a BAL sample, the, the yield is pretty high to come back uh, and tell us exactly what's going on. Okay, great. Brandon, any other thoughts? I guess what I'm curious about is from the perspective of someone not working in a cancer center, um, if we come across a patient with a presentation like this at a more of a general hospital, whether it's a you know relatively large academic center or a smaller community hospital, is this somebody who we ought to be transferring on to such a specialty center? Or, I mean, can we provide this sort of care at a more general place? So this is somebody for like the acute stuff, like, you know, the emerging treatment of somebody with uh, possible leukostasis, uh, 
is really your basic airway management, uh, empiric antibiotics to cover for, you know, possible pneumonia. Um, but ultimately, this is somebody you might stabilize initially just from like a critical care standpoint or emergency standpoint. But the, the treatment of choice for them will be oncologically related. Right? Because, you know, if you don't have oncologists and to start chemotherapy, to do leukophoresis, to, to suggest things like hydroxyurea, you could only symptomatically manage her for so long. Like, you know, if she really, you know, uh, if she really deteriorates, you'd be intubating her, you know, you still give her antibiotic, but there's only so much you could do. Like, the ultimate cause of this is her uh, super elevated white count. And then you can't actually fix that without an oncology team. So if your you know, hospital does not have an oncology uh, um, specialist or unit, uh, this is somebody you want to transfer out to a place with experience with this type of patient right away after you stabilize well, whatever initial presentation she has. Yeah, I certainly feel like um, certainly something like leukophoresis probably wouldn't be available at a lot of smaller centers. So it sounds like a good candidate to, uh, you know, do the initial stabilization. And then um, once their kind of life support needs are met, think about moving them to somewhere more definitive. Yeah, I, I think so. So, you know, leukophoresis is obviously like a temporary thing, even if you do have it. So, I mean, this person needs an expedited uh, like oncological workup to, because otherwise, whatever you're doing is just a big band-aid. So, you, you know, if you don't have an oncology team at your center, this is somebody you really need to stabilize and transfer to a, a, a center where they could take care of this kind of stuff. Okay. Good. Well, thanks so much. That uh, this has been really good. Uh, like I said, I've I I deal with a decent number of cancer patients uh, in my surgical ICU, but they're typically surgonc, um, esophage- esophageal cancer, lung cancer, post Whipple type stuff. Um, I've only dealt with this sort of leukostasis tumor lysis syndrome case once that I can remember, uh, actually in the neuro ICU. So a patient who had a stroke from it. Um, so this is, this is really, really helpful. Uh, I think for those of us who don't see this a lot. So I, I think, um, yeah, this is one example of something that, you know, I can imagine not just in, uh, my, my center, anybody at any ER, even in the local community, they could easily see a patient like this. So it, it, I think this is something that a lot of people encounter. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I think, yeah, cancer is something that we are all going to see more and more of uh, no matter where we work. So thanks for joining us, Leon. Um, and uh, it's been uh, been a good, another good episode. I hope everybody's enjoyed it and uh, we'll hope to see you next time. Yeah, thank you for having me.